2: Welcome to episode 84 of the Podium and Panel Podcast. Today we will cover two cases, and then the third segment is a special segment that Pat taped last Friday with Illinois Supreme Court Justice Mary Jane Tice discussing the Illinois Courts Commission and the search for its first executive director and general counsel, and she was speaking in that role uh, as as part of the commission and not in her role as an Illinois Supreme Court Justice, as uh, you'll hear on there. Uh, thanks to Steve Flom for suggesting we cover this. And thanks to Justice Tice and Pat for taping. I had business matters I could not get away from to tape despite valiantly trying to get off a call to be able to join that uh, interview. The first case today that we'll cover is American Sprinkler versus Erie from the Indiana Appellate Court. And the second case is Mandel versus Lou from the Illinois 1st District involving legal malpractice. Let's turn to our first case. And in this case, a waiver of subrogation could be a devastating defense in U.S. atomic, atomic, automatic sprinkler. (laughs) You have something on your mind there. (laughs) Yeah, versus Erie Insurance Exchange, recently argued before the Indiana Indiana Court of Appeals, the scope and applicability of a waiver is the question. USASC, uh, and if you're listening here, that's the Judge Easterbrook drink, uh, was repairing a sprinkler system. When when damage resulted to the building and the tenants, the sprinkler uh, uh, released water. The insurer who compensated the company for whom USASC was going to do the work, as well as the insurer for the landlord and the other non-contract tenants sued for damages. USASC asserted the waiver of subrogation in the contract applied to both the contracting parties as well as the non-contracting parties. The trial court tonight's summary judgment to USASC, and it appealed on appeal and to the great frustration of some of the justices, as Pat will talk about shortly. Some arguments raised in the trial court were not raised on appeal. Some arguments, including application of New York law, were not raised until the reply brief. Some new arguments were raised in the opening brief, and some argument was raised at this oral argument uh, as well. So kind of a mess. The primary argument by the contracting parties is that the work being done was outside the scope of the contract altogether, so the waiver of subrogation does not apply. The non-contracting parties contend that they cannot possibly be covered by the waiver, but in response, USAASC asserts that it does not owe them a duty at all under the acceptance doctrine. Prior to Peters v. Forster, Indiana had followed the rule that contractors do not owe a duty of care to third parties, after the owner has accepted the work. The Peters Court abolished the acceptance doctrine for bodily injury claims. And the question is whether the abolition applies to property damage claims to a wide ranging and interesting set of issues. Pat, with all of that as background, why don't you tell us more about all the argument in this case?
0: Thanks, Dan. And, and I waivers of subrogation have a special place in my heart. because uh, one of the biggest cases I ever worked on was a case involving an $83 million subrogation claim arising out of the uh, Joliet Casino fire that occurred back in March of 2009. Uh, I represented uh, part of a group of folks that represented the uh, welder who was alleged, and the welding company was alleged to have started that fire. Um, we say alleged because we never got out of the starting gate because we had a AIA contract, that's an uh, American... Institute of Architects contract that had a extraordinarily broad waiver of subrogation, and there was both a um, all-risk policy as well as a builder's risk policy that had paid to make the casino both business interruption as well as personal business, personal property as well as the building to put Humpty Dumpty back together again, and the court held that. Five of the six defendants were out on the waiver of subrogation. They kept the kitchen duct exhaust cleaner. The fire started in a kitchen duct. Uh, they kept the kitchen duct exhaust cleaner in. That got reversed on appeal. So then, when they went back on appeal, the kitchen duct exhaust cleaner won summary judgment on a causation, a uh, condition versus causation argument. That was affirmed on appeal. So that case is all over. Uh, but it's one of the cases that they were discussing was a case that came down during the briefing on appeal in the Emperor's case. And that was a case called Teton from the Indiana Supreme Court. And it was mentioned multiple times by both sides in uh, in this argument. So you have three groups of plaintiffs. You have Erie, you have Travelers, and you have the non-contracting tenants who were, who had uncovered damages that they suffered. So Travelers, I believe, was the contracting parties, insurer who paid, and they were the one that was most directly affected by this alleged waiver of subrogation. And their principal argument was, hold it. This was outside the scope of the contract. How could the waiver of subrogation possibly apply? This was like extra work they've been called in to do on a maintenance type situation. Uh, So it's the scope of the waiver is really what's at issue. Does it apply to anything they do, or does it only apply to certain work described in uh, in the contract? Then you come to these other parties, Erie and the non-contracting parties, who are, you know, another step or two removed, and they really are like, well, how the heck are we covered by this? We didn't sign any contract. We didn't do anything. Uh, and the argument from the, uh, from the American sprinklers, well, we don't owe you a duty in the first instance. So it's not even a waiver of subrogation argument, although they do assert that. It's also right. a, uh, it's also, we don't owe you a duty, which is where this Peters case comes up. And the question, and Peters says that when the work was accepted, you don't have any duty. Uh, the the contractor doesn't have any duty, but that seems to only apply in the bodily injury context. There's a lot of discussion about what is the, uh What does the restatement that was cited in Peters, it's two thousand and six Supreme Court case, uh, Indiana Supreme Court case? What does that apply? And one of the justices said, "So you're telling me the Peter Principle is not divisible?" (laughs) Now, I have to think he did that intentionally because that's one hell of a pun for those that know what the Peter Principle is. It's hilarious Uh, (laughs) that it doesn't apply. it, it, It applies both the personal injury and bodily injury, or sorry, personal injury and to property damage, um, so the question really is Is it how could it make sense to apply to both or not apply to both is the argument of the defendants, whereas the plaintiff goes, oh, it only applies to one kind of thing, and I would liken that to the voluntary undertaking doctrine in Illinois under, I think it's restatement 324A uh, of the second restatement of torts that only applies to bodily injury. Uh, it doesn't apply to property damage. So I'm not so sure that this distinction can't be made. Now I don't not I can't have to say I'm not. I don't remember how precise the language of 324A is relative to this section of the Restatement, but uh, they they may actually have an argument. They don't owe a duty. My question though is is when the when the work went sideways and the and the building started being flooded, how exactly was that accepted by the uh, by the person with whom they were contracting? So I have a real question as whether there was acceptance in the first instance. Maybe I'm misunderstanding what acceptance is, but uh, that that seems to be a bit bizarre. To Dan, Dan also raised the issue of how the briefing was done, and the judges were annoyed with this. The parties, both sides were raising some, apparently both sides were raising some arguments that they hadn't really developed, uh, they hadn't really developed below, or they raised them below, and then they raised them on appeal, and then... They are raising them in the reply brief. The judges were so annoyed. Why don't you just raise all your arguments below, raise all of your arguments uh, in your opening brief, raise all of your arguments in your appellate brief, and just save the reply brief and the oral argument to clean things up. You can't be bringing up new stuff in the reply brief and in an oral argument. The judges were not too happy with how that got done. And frankly, I'm not surprised. Uh, they're trying to, they're trying to figure out what the issues are. There's issues flying all over the place with these three different groups of, uh, lawyer or three different groups of defendants strike that plaintiffs, I should say. And they, they're trying to figure out what arguments apply to who. And meanwhile, there's new arguments coming up. Uh, and it's, it makes a real mess. Uh, a very interesting case. I I really do look forward to what's going to happen here because I, these are difficult. Ca- these are it's a difficult situation as to how to properly uh, a, a bifurcate up the risk, right? Because uh, what you're really fighting about here, and this is something we observed when we were handling the Empress case, was these are two insurance companies fighting with each other. There's no sympathetic party here. The question is which insurer. Uh, everyone knows that it's insurance on both sides, so there's no uh, it doesn't have the usual kind of situation where you have some poor poor person who didn't, uh, didn't sign up for this was innocent entirely and doesn't have any way to backstop. Uh, this is just a giant insurance company versus giant insurance company. A- and so it it, it kind of lets us just get it. What the, What's the law? Dan, did, I, did we cover it? I
2: think so, Pat. You know, there was a lot of talk during the discussion on paragraph five, I think it was, that talked about repairs and had pricing and and whether or not that was was uh, part of the contract then to, to all this stuff you just talked about. so very very uh, you know and, and most of these contracts, I mean these service contracts, these construction contracts like you said other than AIA, th- there's a mess often right and so not 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 as well drafted as could be, but that's the nature of a lot of these small mid-size operations they you know have very basic
0: contracts and good luck if something goes awry use the AIA. Everyone knows what it means, whether right. you like it or not. It's a good set of contracts or use some form that everyone knows. Right. Um, right. You know, it's it's just, it works. <laughs> they, they, there's litigation about it as opposed to making up your own, making up your own or choosing your own adventure. Right. So with that, we'll take our first break and come back with our second case, Mandel versus Lou. back for segment two of the po- of episode 84 of the podium panel podcast, and we're going to discuss Mandel versus Lou. And then we're going to take things a little out of order and do the prediction sure to go wrong in this segment. And then we'll come back in the third segment and we'll do the rule of the week, but it'll be my interview with uh, Justice Tice regarding the Illinois Courts Commission because it goes on for about uh, about 20 minutes. And it's very interesting if you're interested in how how the world works and judges work. Uh, and get regulated in Illinois. So Mandel versus Lou, substantial issues of case within a case, legal malpractice case in this situation. Should the standard for consideration of summary judgment in a legal malpractice case be different if the underlying dispute was decided by a judge as opposed to a jury? Now this is an underlying family law matter, so you don't have a jury, it's decided by a judge. What testimony is necessary and sufficient to demonstrate causation and damages in a legal malpractice case where the underlying dispute relates to a divorce proceeding is it a per se breach for the standard of the standard of care in a divorce proceeding or any proceeding for that matter to fail to file a rule to show cause against the opposing party for the immediate turnover of funds previously ordered to be paid those questions are at the core of those to be addressed when the Illinois appellate court first district decides mandel versus blue that was argued last week The plaintiff sued his former lawyer for alleged malpractice in handling a divorce proceeding. One of the disputes between the divorcing spouses was the rent due on investment property that was ordered to be split and was not paid by the wife. The husband's attorney did not file a motion for rule to show cause and instead raised the issue in closing argument before the trial judge in the divorce trial. The husband did not recover those funds, and the appellate court affirmed the judgment in favor of the wife in the underlying proceeding. The husband then filed a legal malpractice case against his former lawyer, asserting that but for the malpractice of the lawyer, he would have recovered those rents. The trial court granted summary judgment to the attorney, finding that the plaintiff had failed to show causation or damages because the plaintiff's expert testified that he could not say what the judge in the underlying case would have awarded to the husband had the lawyer not breached the standard of care. Counsel for the husband argued that it was sufficient that the husband testified in the legal malpractice case to those damages. And that it is obvious that the failure to file the rule, to show, the motion for rule to show cause proximately caused those damages. Dan, tell us about the oral argument.
2: Thanks, Pat. And to begin with, this, this was a panel with uh, was presided over by Justice Michael Hyman and uh, along with Walker and Pachinski. And, and let's just say that uh, Justice Hyman and Walker, uh, as we've talked about many times on, the, on, on this podcast and other cases, uh, we're all over the appellant, uh, immediately out of the gate. Um, Justice Hyman asked immediately almost, uh, what, what's your best case for showing that there's proximate cause here, right? And uh, the the attorney kind of went through a, a little litany of um, uh, easy to say, it's a factual question. Um, uh, proximate cause is a factual question. And then Justice Hyman pushed back and said, what, what was provided was enough um and then what you uh mentioned uh and, and kind of a peculiar approach honestly is that the issue here has to do in in, in in any malpractice case but in the legal malpractice case of a but for argument right the approximate cause cause losses and then how do you quantify that and as you noted on the introduction to this case pat um the expert really didn't cover it the expert said that that they were not capable of really coming up with a number of what the damages might be. And the appellant's argument was, well, the husband testified on the stand that he lost money, that he was supposed to get half of the seven fifty or $800. And that's sufficient. And per month, per, per, per month. And again, the, uh, justices Hyman and Walker, uh, were pushing back on that, you know, that, that, you're, you're telling us that, that a, a lay witness is it's sufficient for someone to get on the stand and just say, I've been damaged, right? Mm-hmm. And um, how, how are you gonna tie that to the actual conduct, uh, alleged malpractice of the uh, lawyer that was represented there? Um, the, um, uh, like I said, just, just, Justice Hyman um, um, thought and, and pushed back, he said that the expert could not opine when he was uh, asked to, uh, if, if uh, the husband was in a better position or not at the end of the distribution, which was a key question. Um, uh, and then, again, the, the uh, appellant advocate said, well, the husband testified. And Justice Hyman's response was, uh, some questions are more key than others. And so, <laughs> right? The fact that yeah. the expert cannot apply versus the layman. The yeah, council's like, well,
0: he said other things. He said, yeah, he said a lot of other things, but you right. agree this is the real issue.
2: Right. This is the meat of the matter, right? This is, uh, yeah. you know, um, uh, and then uh, uh, Walker um, uh, uh, chimed in and, and kind of joined in in, in the discussion. Um, there, there was this discussion about black line law. And like you said, in the black letter law, black letter law and uh yeah, well he wasn't buying that you gotta give me a case He was and, and and the appellate said it's just it's just common sense right it's you know just it's part of the law and uh, walker said well do you have a case you know we, we and then and justice hyman as well you know the, the, this court we rely on actual precedent and you know we need something to go on so um and and, and again uh, we've talked about uh, legal malpractice we've talked about other malpractice pat um you know, it's, it, it, it's, uh, it's tough to prove legal malpractice in Illinois, as in most states, right? Because, again, you have to show that but for the conduct or lack of something uh, being done by the counsel, that the uh, results would be would have been different, right? And in these divorce cases, I'm not an expert on divorce law, uh, but I guess there, there is a rule that says you're supposed to uh, file the rule to show cause if, if something's not produced. I mean, it's not a rule. It's just
0: it's what's the best practice and, right. and, and maybe the best practice, but it's not the only practice. Right. And, and you know, um, and essentially the argument is, well, you you, you know, the appellate courts, appellate court screwed up when they didn't award it on appeal. And it's like, well, that's not a good argument. Right. <laughs> that's not going to win the day. <laughs> right.
2: Right. Telling
0: one panel of the appellate court, another panel of the appellate court got it wrong. Is it going to is it going to solve your problem?
2: Right. And again, the the, the appellant uh, the advocate was trying to push back a little bit on on taking expert testimony and not having to take it. And Justice Walker again was not really buying that kind of line of argument as well. Uh, pushed back. So um, you know, the, 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 this will be an interesting case, I think, too, to to uh, see uh, uh, what this panel does. Uh, although, as we've talked about previously on this uh, podcast um the the uh uh this panel oftentimes we can kind of tell going in from from the questioning of of justice hyman Uh, i'd mentioned to pat uh, there's a there's another case that i saw that was also this panel although i think i don't know that Pachinsky was on that panel but in any event
0: you wouldn't uh, be able to tell yeah (laughs) justice justices walker and hyman uh talking out for both all very three, I should say,
2: very similar to this, and I, I have a connection to that case. So, but but in any event, uh, Pat, I think I think we'll see. Um, uh, I guess we can make our predictions sort of go wrong. Let's do we'll let's do that else. now.
0: Yeah. So American Sprinkler versus Erie affirmed.
2: Affirmed, I think.
0: I think so. It'd be, I, I'm interested to see how, but yeah. I think affirmed. Yeah. And then uh, Mandela versus Lou affirmed. Affirmed. Yeah. I, I think so too. I
2: think Affirmed. And, uh, uh
0: not much in the turning real quick to our covid our, our covid developments for the week not much this week the fourth circuit came down with a case
2: yep and, the uh, and that's
0: the is that the first one from the fourth circuit
2: no nah, it's their fourth nope. or, fourth or fifth okay all right very good the, i had following that one. Sixth circuit i think has come out with about their eighth ninth tenth maybe a dozen they they about every week they issue another two <laughs> decisions so i think they're the leaders uh, uh the seventh circuit may be close behind although it's it's, it's hard to keep up. And as Pat said, it really doesn't really matter. matter at this point. A, a lot of these are, are the same results and same outcomes that we've talked about before. There was a district court case, tau, and I forget where that was. But that was a case, maybe in Texas. Uh, that was, uh, that was uh, pretty, pretty harsh, again, and finding no physical loss or damage and uh, a pretty long opinion. Um, so but but just consistent with what we've talked about on previous shows, and so next week, if there's if there's cases uh, or any developments, we'll of course report on them.
0: Yep, and then that brings us to our prediction sure to go wrong uh, that on opinions that got issued in the last week or so. Uh, Dan is one hundred and fifteen, eighteen and seven. I'm one hundred and thirteen, twenty and seven. And there were four decisions that uh, came down in the last week or so: three from the United States Supreme Court and one from the uh, indiana supreme court so going through those quickly uh united states versus zubeda this is the state secrets case yep. where uh the fella is still held in guantanamo and he, he alleges he was tortured i think it's not alleged he, he was tortured the question is what was done to him and where and when it was uh, Poland. it was poland it was poland, <laughs> poland. no they know that but they don't know what was done when he was in poland i know I know. And and the, the court held that the state secrets privilege applied to the, to prevent the discovery that they wanted in order to do this discovery in uh, a case filed in Poland on this theory that, you know, who's going to do business with the United States if they know you're going to be able to get uh, hailed into court back home when you allow torture in your CIA black site. Um, written by Justice Breyer, correct? It was so an, an interesting, uh, maybe interesting one there as to who wrote it.
2: One of his final, so yes,
0: maybe. Uh, then we have People versus Wooden. This was a unanimous opinion, written by Justice Kagan. This is the one. This is an armed career criminal case where we were trying to figure out whether it was one occasion when the guy broke into ten different storage units in the span of minutes, or was it? Ten separate burglaries, even though he pled guilty to ten separate burglaries, the court held that it was one occasion because no one would say in any common meaning that he committed ten burglaries or he became a career criminal in the matter of minutes as he broke in through each of these walls of this uh, uh, of this storage facility. So um, a unanimous opinion there. Uh, not much else to add to that one, but, no. you know, they can it's not the court can read. Uh, that brings us to Cameron versus EMW, which is a holy hell mess of procedure, but an 8-1 decision, um, with uh, Justice Sotomayor in dissent and Justice Alito writing for the the majority of the court, uh, holding that it was not it was error for the Sixth Circuit to to not allow the a, the uh, Attorney General of Kentucky to intervene into a case after the former attorney general, who then was elected governor and was of a different party, wasn't going to defend the abortion law anymore. Uh, the Republican uh, attorney general wanted to step up and defend the law and was allowed to defend the law. But the question was, but he didn't do it until after the judgment, because that's when he got the you know, when the switch occurred. And it was, the question was, was it timely and the court held that it was, and it looks at a federalist a federalism issue and really states get to decide who gets to enforce their laws.
2: Which makes sense, as we talked
0: about. The- I, I, I think so. I think yeah, so. I, th- I think it's uh, the right decision. There, there's a lot of nuance there, but there it's essentially, it's a federalism issue. And then it brings us to Lake Imaging versus Franciscan, which is a medical malpractice and insurance case from the Indiana Supreme Court, where the court held that a contractual indemnity claim is not covered by the Indiana Medical Malpractice Act. And so they said it's a contract claim, therefore, you, um, you the 10-year statute of limitations applies and the two-year statute for the MMA doesn't apply and none of the other procedural requirements under the Medical Malpractice Act apply. And they sent it back to figure out if Lake Imaging, the subcontracting radiology group, is going to have uh, insurance coverage. Uh, because it was found to be a contract claim, right? And contract claims aren't Generally typically covered by a policy of, of liability insurance.
2: It, it, uh, it's it, viewed it, as it,
0: an intentional act or of some kind, and just not covered. It's not an occurrence, not an accident. It's a, a breach of contract. Specific, so usually specific exclusion as well could be a contract. could be a specific exclusion on top of it. You're right, but it's not. I mean, in the first instance, it's not in the insurance agreement. It's not an accident. It's not an occurrence. And then you get to the exclusion, perhaps. Right. Um, so we got all those right. Bully for us, yeah. uh, Dan. Anything to add on to those?
2: No, I think that's it. I think those a good summary of the four and uh, Supreme Court, uh, as we've talked about uh, on these three cases, pretty pretty uh, unanimous at the Supreme Court, and so some some of these cases. I think like there was Supreme one Court, dissent. One dissent
0: one to set the three opinions so, so, I mean there's lots of there's lots of uh, p- people joining in stuff in the Cameron case. It's a it's a mess there but ultimately in the judgment it was it was 881 and then everything everybody agreed on the, uh, the, on the other ones. so with that we'll take our next break and come back with my interview with uh, Justice Tice. Hey, Podium and Podcast listeners. If you want to get in touch with the show, you can drop us a line at podiumandpanelpodcast at gmail.com. Please let us know about cases you're interested in or guests you'd like us to interview. You can also follow Dan and I on LinkedIn, as well as the Podium and Panel Podcast page on LinkedIn. We look forward to hearing from you.
2: We're back for our third segment on episode 84. And the special interview that Pat conducted with Supreme Court Justice Mary Jane Tice, dealing with the Judicial Commission,
0: uh, and and this is our this is going to serve as our rule of the week. Our discussion about the uh, the Illinois Courts Commission, and uh, with that, here is my conversation with Justice Tice. Welcome to a very special. Uh, segment of the Podium and Panel podcast with Justice Mary Jane Tice of the Illinois Supreme Court, and we're talking with her today about the Illinois Courts Commission and specifically the uh, call that has gone out for uh, an executive director and general counsel for the commission. Uh, Justice, first of all, thank you very much for uh, joining us, and why don't you tell us about the Illinois Courts Commission and this position that's, uh, that is, that's, you're seeking to get filled.
1: Great. Well, thanks, Pat, for having me. And um, let me start by saying uh, I'm here today uh, in my role as chair of the courts commission, um, uh, rather than uh, you know making decisions in the Supreme Court. It's a different kind of role. And and actually, that's uh, the court has an
0: administrative role under the under the Illinois absolutely. under the Illinois Constitution.
1: Right. So that that's what's really important is to make that distinction because. Um, What what uh, I've learned is that the system of judicial discipline that we have in Illinois is unique uh, across the country. Um, Most uh, states have a system where um, one body receives um, uh, complaints from people from lawyers from citizens, and then they investigate and then they act as prosecutor and perhaps they um, bring charges against the judge. And that same body, uh, then makes a recommendation as to whether the judge should be sanctioned or not. And then ultimately in all those other states, their Supreme courts can, uh, make that decision and maybe disagree with what their disciplinary body did.
0: Sounds a lot like the ARDC. Pardon? Sounds like a lot like how the ARDC works for the regulation of lawyers
1: to some degree, although ultimately it's the Supreme Court and the ARDC that imposes the, yeah, yes. I mean that's that's what I mean, that
0: sounds like how lawyers are regulated in Illinois.
1: Right, you're right, you're right. Um, However, uh, in 1970, when our constitution was first uh, drawn up, uh, the uh, framers created a very different kind of system uh, for a number of reasons. Uh, but here in Illinois. And here we have the Judicial Inquiry Board that acts as prosecutor, receives complaints and investigates, and then determines whether to file a complaint against a judge or not. And then is the trial lawyer during it, the, the trial. And then a completely separate entity, the Courts Commission, that determines the facts and then um, determines whether those facts violate the Code of Judicial Conduct. And what's a critical difference here is the Constitution says the Courts Commission is an independent body. In other words, the Supreme Court does not have any authority to review the decisions of the Courts Commission. So clearly, the framers uh, gave a huge grant of authority to this entity, Um, and then set out some of the types of sanctions that uh, that the Courts Commission can impose, including removal for office. So here is this body that has the authority to remove a Elected official from office without any kind of review from the Supreme Court. Also, in the um, constitution, or the people's
0: representatives in the General Assembly, for that. matter. Uh,
1: absolutely, this is it stands on its own. Um, it's independent. Um, additionally, the language of the Constitution requires that the General Assembly um, provide the funds for the Court's Commission. And when we looked at the Constitutional Convention colloquy, we see that they talked about staffing, but um, that never has happened, and I, there's, you know, no suggestion that anything that was inappropriate about that, but there was never a request for um, an appropriation, and so therefore, um, there's been no staff, or there's been no address, or phone number, or email address, or website, um, and so the court, this commission has this incredible uh, authority and, and uh, duty, and yet um, it, it uh, has only existed as uh, with the support of the administrative office of the Illinois courts in a very ministerial ways so of setting up meetings and that kind of thing. And of course, th- the whole idea is to be independent from the Supreme Court. The administrative office of the Illinois court is a part of the Supreme Court. And certainly I'm not, again, suggesting that there was any inappropriate, there was no no suggestion that that undermined this idea of independence, but it's just not the way the framers envisioned what this very powerful body should be about. Um, And so um, the members of the commission have uh, come together to think about ways that uh, we can bring to life what the the, uh, framers uh, envisioned um specifically let me tell you about the last case that the courts commission heard um, about a year ago uh there was a complaint filed by the jab uh to that accused a judge of sexual harassment in the workplace and so the first question is uh, should be is that a violation of the code of judicial conduct you'd think that was kind of an easy question to answer um so like any good lawyer, what you would do is you'd go back and you'd look and say, precedentially, um, what has the course commission done in the past in these kind of cases? Well, here's the deal. It's almost impossible to find the opinions of the courts commission. Uh, there's no website. There is no, it's not on Lexus. It's, it, it, what happens is the um, opinions are sent to the parties, the judge and the judicial inquiry board. And the judicial inquiry board does on their website have a place for um, opinions of the courts commission uh, Commission back to 1985. But again, if you're a member of the public and you question, well, is sexual harassment in the workplace a violation of the code of judicial conduct? How are you gonna find that? You're not. Um, so what happened in that case was um, understanding that there's not, and, 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 and the courts commission was able to get our own Cases and, and there's never been a case where the Courts Commission has made a clear statement. So in this case, um, the, uh, there was a trial, the court found the facts, and then the Courts Commission um, uh, made a determination that the facts, in fact, were a violation of the Code of Judicial Conduct. That night, when the, after that announcement of that decision was made, the judge retired. And so there was no other way for the Courts Commission to impose any kind of sanction. But the commissioners decided they wanted to make a strong statement so that judges would know and that the public would know that sexual harassment in the workplace is in fact a violation of the judicial code of conduct. It's an ethical obligation in and of itself. So we wrote a real strong opinion uh, to say that, so to inform the public, to inform judges. And I actually kind of thought there might be some press about this. This is the first time there's ever been a statement like this from the Courts commission. And I was kind of surprised when I never heard about it yet. So I asked from the AOIC, well, what happened? And they said, well, we filed it. And I said, what do you mean? And she said, well, we sent a copy to the JAB. We sent a copy to the judge. and I put a file stamp on the opinion and put it in a drawer. So that was the impetus for the commissioner to say, no, 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 that's not what the Constitution envisions. How do we get from here to where we should be? And the first step was to go to the um, legislature. And the Chief Justice Burke and Justice Garman and I went to legislative leaders and laid all this out, uh, the plain language of the Constitution. And immediately they said, uh, yes, they would support a, an appropriation. So now we're in a position where uh, we can move forward. Let me put it this way, too. When I say move forward, obviously what we need is staff. We need a strong executive director, lawyer, general counsel to assist the commission in being what it was meant to be. But roll back. How do we find staff? Well, we don't have an email address. We don't have a phone number. We don't have an address. We don't have a website. after, over the last few months, we've been working on that kind of groundwork <laughs> uh, to at least have a, that kind of presence uh, and- uh, Having if, having
0: just moved firms, ju- Justice, uh, I understand. Uh, you're trying to figure out an address, a telephone number, a, uh, a Cook County bar number, a
1: firm number, a, <laughs> I the worst, understand. The worst, the worst. Dot .gov, okay, yes. this is the government. So how to get a dot .gov domain? took about two months. There is a federal cybersecurity agency that requires all sorts of- uh, I you could understand that. I mean, they don't wanna give out .gov like candy. I I get why they they, that's right for all kinds of shenanigans. Right, so they say, who's the contact person? Well, me, I'm the only contact person, I'm the chair. Um, uh, What is your website? Well, it's not the court's website. What is your email? What's not the court's web uh, email? Right. So it, it just, it, believe me. Uh, the, 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 um, it sounds like a chicken something. and the egg
0: problem because you're like, I don't have a URL because I don't have a, because I don't have a, a website. So I can't have an email address at the URL and I can't use my, whatever my email address is when I'm wearing my hat as justice Tice. I'm Chief, what is it? Chief commissioner or commissioner Tice or chair of the commission Tice. It's gotta be something separate under the, under the, under the constitution.
1: Yes, as you say, if you've uh, had to move or uh, you uh, have learned all of the uh, uh, trickiness of all this, and believe me, this was tenfold, Um, but uh, in a wonderful uh, uh, moment uh, about 10 days ago, uh, all of this went live, and also during this period, we worked on a job description, and we worked on some ideas of what this um, executive director would do and not only to create a website so that people could find out and find the opinions of, of um, the commission and search, I think those things are important, but that there are really lots of missed opportunities um, that when we have someone who's able to um, be a leader in the area of judicial ethics, that uh, a great deal more can be done. And I say that in terms of um, uh, judges in this state, might Experience, my believe is that most judges in the state are hungry for information about judicial ethics, they want to do the right thing. Um, like many kinds of uh, ethical rules, they, the rules can sound very, um, you know, hypothetical and uh, impossible to ever live by. And judges want direction, they want help, they want to know what is expected of them. And so on one hand, this executive director can now um, do training, uh, and uh, more explanation about um, not only what um, has happened here in, here in Illinois, but you know there's national issues. there's national organizations about judicial ethics. this person can bring Illinois uh, to a national level. And ultimately what's most important to me, Pat, and I think for the commission, all of the commissioners, is that a strong executive director, a strong, robust courts commission, is an important message to the people. The people of the state of Illinois need to have trust and confidence in the integrity of the Illinois judiciary. And if they can know through this leadership of the executive director that Illinois judges are held the highest ethical standard and that they embrace those ethical standards, that goes a long way, I hope, to um, promoting the people's trust and confidence. Um, That's the ultimate. Ethical obligation of any judge to promote the public's confidence and this effort to uh, enhance the course commission, I think goes a long way to do that.
0: Which I think is the the reasoning I imagine by the framers in the first instance to make this body so independent so. uh, um, Affirmatively independent of any of the elected members of the Supreme Court or the judicial or the uh, general assembly or of the executive branch it's kind of like a fourth branch of government to regulate this third branch of government, uh, you know, to make sure that the, there's, the judges are acting, the, thousand, the 900 or 1,000 judges and justices are acting well. If I, it, it, help me out just on the mechanics of the courts commission, does it regulate just the circuit judges or the appellate court and Supreme Court justices what justices as well?
1: It is the body that is authorized to impose sanctions on every judge in the state from the Supreme Court on. And and just a little bit of history um, uh, illuminates, I think, how we got to where we are. Uh, In the late 60s, two justices of the Supreme Court were under investigation for corruption. I think it was in that context that the framers said, well, we can't have the Supreme Court then uh, being the, the, the final word. Uh, so the, the, the structure of it is that um, uh, the Supreme Court itself uh, chooses one of its members uh, to s- sit on the commission. The appellate court, and now we're talking about, you know, not by district, but the entire appellate court. We have one appellate
0: court in Illinois. It just happens well, to be divided up five ways.
1: That's true. And uh, the appellate court themselves, all 52 of them, um uh choose two members uh the uh two circuit judges are chosen by the supreme court and interestingly two non-judges are public members and they're appointed by the governor also the supreme uh, the constitution rather, sets out a really elaborate um, structure in case to to avoid conflict so if there's a a judge comes before the course commission, uh, one of the and it, one of the judges, just the people on the circuit judges on the course commission is from the same circuit. That judge has to recuse themselves, and and so there's a whole slate of uh, alternate judges too. So, um, you know, one, one of the issues sometimes is when there's um, when when should someone a judge uh, recuse themselves, uh, and sometimes there's some concern of how to do that and if they'll be how the court will function if they're down by one judge and that kind of thing. The Constitution sets out a whole process to ensure that uh, there's no sense of, of a conflict of interest um, uh, in, this, in this area. Also, the, the addition of the two public members has been really important. That wasn't in the original Constitution. That was uh, in mid-90s. And um, that's been really important. One of the members, the longest serving member of the courts commission, is in fact a non-judge, a non-lawyer. And she was the first public um, uh, appointee to the course commission, named, her name is Paula Wolf. And so she's had the longest experience uh, on issues of judicial discipline from any of the other members. And she's not a lawyer, she's not a judge, but she has this interest in judicial ethics and now she has this great institutional knowledge um, of what's happened in the past.
0: Well, and again, it's another, um reflection of what the purpose of the commission was in the first instance, was to give the people confidence and a voice in the judiciary, which you have so little. I mean, in contrast to, you take the federal system on the other end where they aren't elected, they they have lifetime tenure, their, assent, their, their only accountability is to Congress should they get around to impeaching one. And the last impeachment was, of a judge was, I, I, I remember, I grew up in South Florida, so I remember when Alice Hastings was impeached uh but i since then i can't remember too many i'm sure it's occurred but it's not my about my memory so it doesn't happen very often
1: well they have a very different system very different discipline. system uh and uh, you know there's been a lot of public commentary just recently sure. about that um and as i say uh we in preparing for all of this the members of the commission uh, aided by good friends like um Steve Flamm who's the chair of the Illinois Judicial Ethics Committee, which is an independent body. That's a part of the course commission. But it's a function of the State Bar, the Chicago Bar, and the Illinois Judges Association. Uh, Steve Flamm is the chair. Uh, retired Judge Ray McCoskey is the vice chair. And they. Um, the purpose of this committee is to uh, provide advisory opinions to judges if they have questions. Again, if judges want to do the right thing, sometimes it's not clear what they should do. This this body uh, is able to give them advisory opinions, but uh, clearly uh, Steve Flom and Ray McCoskey are uh, in Illinois, the uh, traditional discipline gurus. They know more about this than, than anyone I know. And they're very deeply involved in national uh, discussions. So when we started to have this conversation, they were, they've been a great assistance to the commission and uh, what through them we've learned there's no other state that functions just the way we do here. And again, it's a higher standard than any other place that we know of, uh, and and we want to uh, we want to make Illinois a, um, a national leader on these issues, and we haven't because we haven't belonged to the national groups because we haven't really had an opportunity. Yeah, to we've finish. got
0: this. We've got this unique procedure that uh, we just got to take advantage of it. Uh, Fifty exactly. years on, exactly. so.
1: And and you you may know, and your listeners might be interested to know, um, the Illinois Judicial Ethics Committee that I just described, uh, the function of the ISBA, the CBA, and the IJA, has um, proposed a very uh, thorough rewrite of the rules of judicial conduct. And that issue is currently pending before the Supreme Court. So um, one way or another, I think we're going to be seeing lots of new um, rules and... uh, Um, There's been public hearings uh, on these rules that uh, were held. Um, And so uh, the issues of of, uh, judicial ethics uh, is I think going to be a hot topic to come, and hopefully with a strong leader in place, um, uh, the executive director will have a a voice in all of those discussions. Well,
0: Justice Tice, thank you very much uh, for all of your uh, insight on this important issue. I have to say, I I was unaware of many of the things that you've talked about today, and it's really uh, very informative, and and our listeners will enjoy it and will really appreciate you being very uh, generous with your time. Thank you very much for joining us.
1: Well, thank you for giving me an opportunity to speak, because you're right. No one knows about the courts commission, and my goal is to let them know.
0: Outstanding, Judge. We're going to try to help you do that. Have a great weekend. Thank you. Well, thank you very much for Justice Tice joining us. Uh, it was a great pleasure to speak with her. She was very gracious with her time, um, and hopefully, and I learned a lot about how this very u- uh, unique corner of Illinois procedure works. Hope you've learned something there too. I did with too. That, with that, with that, we'll take uh, we'll take our leave and see everybody next week on the Podium and Panel podcast.
2: I'm Dan Cotter, and on behalf of my co host, Pat Eckler, we thank you for listening and look forward to having you join us again. Please follow us on LinkedIn and read our columns in the Chicago Daily Law Bulletin. Please join us again at the Podium and Panel. Each episode on the Podium and Panel podcast. We will cover several oral arguments and decisions in civil matters at the Illinois Appellate Court and Illinois Supreme Court, with the occasional coverage of SCOTUS and other appellate courts. The purpose of the podcast is to inform of developments that may affect business and are not to be considered legal advice. They do not create a lawyer-client relationship. Information on previous case results do not guarantee a similar future result. The opinions are their own, and do not reflect those of the firms for which they work or their clients.